Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Mark 1, uh, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem are going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, you are so merciful. You are so good and great and gracious. You provide for us when we don't even see our own needs. You teach us when we feel that we have learned all there is. Um, You see our pride and our sin, and you stoop to meet it with grace. I pray that as we begin to dive into the Gospels today, specifically the Gospel of Mark, Lord, that you would teach us more about yourself. You would teach us more about your grace that culminated in you sending your Son. That we would learn from Jesus and his words, but also we would learn from the, the forebearers of our faith, the disciples and, and John the Baptist, Lord, that you would teach us the truths that we need to know in our hearts, soften our hearts, encourage us, challenge us where it is uh, necessary. Lord, I pray that you would give Billy wisdom, clarity of thought, where it is necessary. And Lord Jesus, in all things, continue to work on our hearts. Make us look more like you as each day passes. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Yeah, we're finally in Mark. Hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, our time in Nehemiah, but I am pretty stinking excited to be in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I know we kind of hammered this, but two quick things. One, if you don't have one of these, um, they're awesome. Super helpful tool. Um, I got the one with the shiny cover because I thought it was awesome. There's plain boring black ones, but you guys got the cool fish, so you're welcome. Um, This is just a tool that we wanted to, some people feel weird about marking in their Bibles, and so now you don't have to feel weird about it. You can take notes, you can follow along, you can use this at home to study to dive deeper into the book of Mark. And again, we're excited to gather together to pray to seek the Lord this afternoon at 4 o'clock. So again, yeah, Union Street, just behind that, there's a parking lot. I'll be standing out there waving You can come find us and pray with us. So last May, I was on a retreat praying and fasting, asking God where he wanted to take Coram Deo. Where was God going to take us as a body, as a church? I knew that this fall was going to be pivotal for us. We're a young church plant, and I wanted to lead us well as a body. And I remember reading through the Gospel of Mark and thinking, yes, this is it. I felt like this is where God was directing me, and I knew we would walk together in Mark, but I didn't know what the landscape of our culture would become, right? I didn't realize how the gospel of Mark would cut through the tension of our age of hostility and fear. You see, Mark is really different than the other gospels. 
At the beginning of the New Testament, we get four books that we call Gospels. These are four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Again, they're what we call Gospels. Matthew is written to the Jews telling them that Jesus, well, he's the Messiah King who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And Luke, Luke is written to Greeks telling them that Jesus is the perfect son of man who came to save and minister to the world. And John, well, John's written to all of mankind, written to the whole world, telling that Jesus is the fully human, fully divine son of God whom we must believe to receive eternal life. But Mark, well, Mark is just different. Mark is written to the Romans. It was written to tell them that Jesus is the suffering servant who actively ministers on our behalf and gives his life as a ransom for many. It's important for you and I to know the context. Imagine you're in the first century church in Rome and you're gathered together on a Sunday, but you're not in a church. You're not even meeting in somebody's home. You're meeting in secret in catacombs. The emperor Nero, well, he's outlawed your faith. Why? Well, a while back, there was a great tragedy that struck Rome. It was caught up in a devastating fire. The damage was insurmountable. Many people blame Nero for starting the fire. In fact, while Rome burned, he fiddled. Nero was looking for someone to blame, and so he shifted it to those weird people who kind of keep to themselves and help everyone, the Christians. Those people who say there's only one God. Well, now because of this, Christians are persecuted. The emperor has them arrested. And they're either uh, dressed in animal clothes to be fed to the dogs. Or they're fed to the lions in the Colosseums for people to watch. Or they're crucified and set on fire so that Nero could light up his garden at night. Can you imagine that? It's brutal. So after you've lost everything in a just horrific fire, now you're being hunted down. You see, Mark is a gospel written by John Mark, the companion of the apostle Paul and and the secretary to the disciple and apostle Peter. And here, Mark is taking the disciple Peter, the apostle Peter's account, and he's putting it on paper. This gospel is, is, is focused on the action of Jesus, not just his words, but his actions See, I had no clue a year ago that we would be where we are in the world. Many of us live in real fear, right? Our lives have been upended by a global pandemic. We're in the midst of one of the most politically volatile times in our nation's recent history. I have a friend who's a pastor who called these Shadowland Days. So speaking out to the midst of us in these Shadowland Days is the Gospel of Mark. It hits hard and it, it, it hits fast. We witness what Jesus does, how he responds, that he too suffers. So here's the thing about our king, right? We, we think about kings in our world, right? In England, if you were to meet royalty, if you were to meet the queen, there is a strict etiquette that you must follow. One of those things is no touch, right? So you're not going to be high-fiving the queen or giving her a big hug. No, 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 no. In fact, in the 90s, there was this massive controversy because the Australian prime minister put his arm around her. And everyone thought, this guy is the worst. It's a social taboo. That's a huge no-no. But friends, that's not our king. See, Jesus comes as the suffering servant who eats with sinners, who touches lepers, who heals the broken. 
He came to serve us by suffering on a cross so that you and I might have life. Mark's gospel is a call to a broken world to follow Jesus. And really, that's our tag for the sermon series, called to follow. Here's how my buddy Kyle said it. He said it like this. When we walk in the way of Jesus, we will be confronted and comforted by his witness and we will confront and comfort the world with our witness. We will be confronted and comforted by his witness, and we will confront and comfort the world with our witness. But you see, we won't know the comfort of Jesus if we're not confronted in our allegiances to other kingdoms. We have to be confronted. See, here's the problem for many of us, of us as Christians, right? We're in the South. We are in smack dab, bam, the buckle of the Bible belt, right? We all probably grew up in church. We all probably know a couple of verses. We all know some old hymns. Maybe, maybe some of you guys never grew up in the church and that's okay. But the inundation of Christianity in our culture is huge. You see, in the South, we have this problem with quote unquote Christians. We see people who are either bored or apathetic when it comes to following Jesus, or we see people who are extremely exhausted because they're trying to do it on their own. The call is not to earn the love of God, but to enjoy it. And today we find ourselves at the beginning of this incredible account that is going to teach us the truth. It's going to teach us about the good news of Jesus. And today we see simply this, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Sometimes we struggle to trust that our God is sovereign and kind. And our passage today is calling us to trust, to trust in God's plan of redemption. So let's jump in and let's see first, we can trust God to keep his promise. Look back at the passage with me. Let's look at the first four verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. God had long ago promised to send a savior. He was going to send a deliverer, a Messiah. And here's what Mark is saying. The time has come. The time has arrived. The savior has come as well as the forerunner that God called to prepare the way. We see Jesus Christ and John the baptizer. Now, there are quite a few things to unpack here. And the first thing is that word gospel, right? For many of us, we typically, we typically think of one of two things, either gospel in terms of genres of literature, right? Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or gospel in terms of genre of music. But the word actually preceded Christianity and was actually an announcement. It was good news, So here's how I want you to think of that word gospel. Gospel, a living word of hope from the lips of an appointed messenger. A living word of hope from the lips of an appointed messenger. So what is the good news? What is the gospel? Well, it is that the Messiah has come. 
right? Imagine a drum roll. I'm not going to have you guys do one, but imagine a drum roll, if you will. Now have that drum roll go and go and go for centuries, right? It's like giving a three-year-old a drum set. It's a bad idea. It's a long drum roll. That's what's happened with God's people. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. There have been generations of silence as the people of God awaited the one who was going to come and bring about the promised restoration. But now we see he's come. Jesus has entered the scene. God has kept his word. He sent his Messiah. Now, when we hear Jesus Christ, we think of Christ as a last name, right? Like, Glossin, but it's not. It's not at all. It's a title. Christ means anointed or anointed king, and that's who Jesus is. He is Jesus, the anointed king. So this first verse, right, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, it's the thematic statement for the entire gospel of Mark. He sends his son. He sends his Christ, the Messiah, But Mark also shows us that God fulfilled not just this promise, but many, including that he would send a forerunner. You see, before the Messiah, God promised to send someone who would prepare the way, a forerunner. Mark combines three texts evolving themes of wilderness, a new Exodus, and the forerunner Elijah, right? He points us to Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 43. What Mark is doing is he's referencing the most significant and well-known texts regarding this forerunner to the Christ. God had promised to send his messenger who would prepare the way, who would make the road ready for the Messiah. This forerunner, this witness, would loudly proclaim his message where God continually met his people, calling them to repentance, and that was in the wilderness. The message was simple. The message was clear. Level the roads, make them presentable, make them safe, because the king is coming. God had kept his word. Now, when we read that and we hear God has kept his word, what does that do in your heart? How does that make you feel? this morning. Today, perhaps you feel like you are also wandering in the wilderness. The idea of trusting in God feels vague and unattainable. We can look at our lives and we can say, certainly, yeah, we've come to trust in him, right? We responded in simple faith. We've plunged ourselves beneath Calvary's cleansing flood. We've looked away from our works and we've trusted in Jesus alone. We've trusted and seen, we've seen that he's sweet. We know his promises are true. We have lives full of stories that prove his faithfulness over and over. We believe in his goodness, truthfulness, promise, love. Yeah, we trust him. But friends, if we're honest, at times we waver. We do. We wonder, does God really even hear our prayers? Right in the morning, we glance at his word, and then we move on to the next task. And our suffering tempts us to become suspicious of his sovereignty. Unanswered prayer makes us unsure of if he cares or not. Chronic pain makes us skeptical whether he's really with us in our time of need. We're tempted as Lot's wife to look back. And listen, y'all, this distrust, it doesn't just come overnight. It comes upon us subtly. We start to sleep in a little more. We start to pray a little less. 
we start to schedule fewer times of fellowship with believers. We get lost in our schedules. We start to scroll through our lives. And yet, the quiet, still, small voice calls out to us, come back to me, and we ignore it. Here's the thing, though. I think many of us know that we've strayed. We know, ultimately, that God has done nothing to merit distrust. We sing, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust you more. And here's the thing. Our enemy is happy to keep the nominal Christian content and happy. I did the thing. I checked the box. I'm good. As long as their trust isn't really rooted in the king of the ages. But for those of us who trust in him, our enemy wants nothing more than to completely and totally derail us. He doesn't want us to sing from our souls that his steadfast love is better than life. He delights to see Christians with heads bowed in shame, mumbling to themselves as they struggle with their sin. Does God even love me? He desires to make sons and daughters practical orphans. We're going to see next week that this is exactly what he did to Jesus. No sooner had the words washed over Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, does Satan tempt him in the wilderness twice concerning his sonship? Well, if you really are the son of God, that's what he does to us today, friends. If you are a son of God, then why is your kid so rebellious? Why does your kid not listen? If you are a daughter of God, then why are you still unmarried? If you, really are a if you really are a child of the living God, then why did he hand you the serpent of miscarriage? If he's so well pleased with you, why don't you feel it? God pours out his love into our hearts through his spirit and Satan tries to dam up the life-giving flood through lies about our circumstances. Coram Deo, we can look to Jesus and Mark and we can see that God's love stands beyond our circumstances. God's love is beyond comprehension. It spans from everlasting to everlasting. Because of the cross, it does not deflate due to sin. God will stop loving his people only when the moons overthrow their maker's command or when the sun can depart from the course he has set for it, or when the heavens can be measured, or the molten core of the earth explored, then and only then will he cast out his people from before him. That's what Jeremiah 31 tells us. In other words, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Doubt affects experience, but not reality. If we are truly in Christ, our fluctuating experience, our muttering sentiments of unworthiness are no match for the evidence he has provided for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God wrote in permanent marker at Calvary. There he crucified all of our reasons to distrust him. There from sin and self, we cease. There, from Jesus, we simply take joy and life and rest and peace. Oh, for grace to trust him more. So, friends, we can take God at his word and we can trust him to keep his promises.
But second, and our final point, we can trust God to send his messengers. Look at verses four through eight. Look back at the passage. We'll, we'll jump down to verse five. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The sending of John the Baptist was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It signaled a new day in redemptive history. What do I mean when I say redemptive history? Well, that's the series of events that God carefully orchestrated to redeem his people from sin and death. And that this ended, this culmination of redemptive history is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And here we see the way is being prepared. Now, Jesus had much to say about John. In Matthew 11, we catch up on the scene and he says this, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. So John was held in high esteem by Jesus. He was the Elijah that was to come, the one who would announce the coming of the Messiah. He was God's messenger. Now John came and he was doing something real weird. He was baptizing. Now this has got to read for the Jewish audience as wholly unusual. This is not something that any prophet had ever done before. Baptism was typically for Gentile converts into Judaism. And what John was saying to Israel was that they had lived in sin, they had lived in wickedness, and they were living like they were unbelievers, like that God didn't actually exist. And so the time is now that they must repent, that they must ready themselves because the king is coming. And here's the thing, though. John knew that what he was doing was insufficient. His baptism wasn't enough. His baptism was a metaphorical and an external washing of sins. He told them that he had drenched them with water, but there was one, only one who was eternal, who would come and would drench them in the Holy Spirit, a baptism that is intrinsically internal. This is a callback to Ezekiel 36, where it says, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, when we are baptized in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit permeates every single part of us. Christianity meets men and women in their radical need and provides a radical answer. If you don't know Christ, well, then you're still in your sin. But the Spirit's baptism is the answer. When he drenches your life with his, you are forever changed. 
You see, water marked John's baptism, but when Jesus came, the Holy Spirit marks those who were identified in him. This is a clear call for us to repentance, right? The folks, they were being called to repent of their sin and to walk away from it. Not to, as Jen said, just say sorry, but to say sorry and then actually change. But here's the thing, friends, repentance alone won't save you because your effort alone cannot save you. John tells them they need the gospel. They need Jesus. They need the spirit. Christ alone saves. Now, two quick observations as we look at John's example. The first is we should be faithful like John. Friends, John was called to an incredible task. Hey, John, we want you to go and prophesy that the Messiah is coming. Dress real weird. Um, eat some locusts, eat some honey, and then uh, start telling these, uh, these Jews that come, hey, you're no better than the Gentile unbeliever. Get in this water. You need to get baptized. Yet he is seemingly fearless. He calls out the Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy. Right? They show up on the scene and they're like, John, what are you doing? He's like, oh, the brood of vipers is here. Does he, I mean, does he have a death wish? What is this guy doing? He proclaims a baptism that is essentially saying the time is now, get right with God. Now, months ago, I shared this quote, one of my favorite quotes of all time from one of the coolest names ever, Count Zinzendorf. This is what he says. He says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's heartwarming, right? That's what you want to put on a t-shirt and a coffee mug to wake you up in the morning. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. But friends, that's how John lived. He knew that all that matters in his life is that I please the living God. Coram Deo, we must be faithful like that. Man, how are you preparing the way for Jesus? When you think about those in your life who don't know Jesus, how are you preparing the way for Jesus? I've told some of you guys this story. So when I was back in Missouri, I like board games a lot. Okay, those of you who don't know that, surprise, I do. Like a lot, a lot. Like I own over 200 board games a lot. It's a lot, right? It's a lot. So my brother Daniel wants me to play this card game with him that I've avoided forever called magic the gathering yep super nerd that's what my brother wanted me to do he's like hey man come with me i want you to do this um if you don't know about it it's uh it's not like witchcraft and sorcery it's essentially a giant hole that you just throw money into which is why i wanted nothing to do with it okay i wanted nothing to do with it wasn't interested he talked me into going with him so i go with him to this game store and i'm meeting all these people playing this game learning it and here's what my brother daniel proceeded to do he'd win game after game and he would open these really unique, cool cards that to you and I is just a piece of cardboard, right? But to these kids, that was everything. It was like the coolest thing in the world. And here's what my brother Daniel would do at the end of the game. He'd give it to him. And you would think that he just put a $100 bill on the table, which theoretically sometimes he had because the cards were worth that much. And he would say, here you go, man. Good game. And they would look at him befuddled. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Don't give this to me. And here's what Daniel would always say. This is just a game. You are way more important than this piece of cardboard to me. And if this gives you joy, man, I want to give this to you. Daniel had prepared the way for so long that when he showed up, people were excited to see him. They were like, Dan's here. One guy literally got a play mat of my brother's face on it. Okay. It was ridiculous. And what he would do is he would stay late. He would talk to these guys about how their parents had gotten divorced. 
He would pray with people who had no hope. He invited people to come to church with him. He shared the gospel faithfully over and over again. And it was an incredible way for him to prepare the way for Jesus. So what about you? How are you preparing the way for Jesus? The second thing, we should be humble like John. We should be humble like John the Baptist. John lived a life of humility. He lived in the desert dressed in meager clothing, eating locusts and honey. Now, this is what else happens. In John chapter 3, this is what John says. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. This is counter to what a lot of false teachers present. So many assume that Christianity is to be this life of health, wealth, and prosperity. But for John, he looked at Jesus and said, nah, he must increase, but I must decrease. John is saying, look, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just a friend. And when the bride comes and joins the bridegroom and everybody looks away from me to him, my joy then is complete. John says that he isn't worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of Jesus's sandals. In Israel at that time, everybody wore sandals, even the wealthy, and their feet got filthy on the dusty roads. The wealthy would get their servants to take their sandals off so that they wouldn't have to be bothered with it. But John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. He's saying, do not get excited about me. Get excited about the one that I'm pointing to. I'm pointing you to the one who is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Friends, this should be the humility that we walk in. This should be the humility of our witness. That we will not begrudge it when all the attention turns away from us into Jesus. As the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Think back with me to those Roman Christians, humbled in the darkness, likely in catacombs. They hear anew the message of the preparation for the Messiah, and they rejoice because they know the Messiah has come. Because of their faith in him, they're willing to be eaten by dogs, burned at the torches in the gardens, or thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. Oh, but how they loved to hear the story of the coming of Jesus, the Son of God. Friends, in these shadow land days, we have great hope because of our great trust. God keeps his promise. He has delivered his son and he has sent his messengers. Corndeo, that's us. That's us. Are we giving the good news of the gospel to others? Are we preparing the way? This morning, as you consider John's message, preparing the way, as we hear his call to repentance, and as you examine your life, are there places that you need to repent? See, for me, when I hear that word repentance, I think of J.R. Smith and the 2018 NBA Finals. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about, right? 
He gets this crucial rebound with one second left in the game. He could have made the shot. He could have passed it. But instead, he dribbles the ball in the wrong direction. I mean, the picture of LeBron going is burned into my mind. It's hilarious. I think for many of us, that's how we are. We too often are confused in our perspective on life, and we make bad decisions. We think we see clearly, but actually we're moving in the wrong direction and we need to repent. When you and I lose perspective, when we head in the wrong direction, it usually costs a lot more than points on a scoreboard. This morning, we're called back. We're called to follow after Jesus. As the Roman Christians were hiding, they would often mark the catacombs with one of the earliest Christian symbols known to men. It was a fish. It was called Ichthus. What it meant was Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Friends, this is the essence of Mark's gospel. And it's the essence of the good news of the gospel for you and I. Come and know this Savior, God's Son, Jesus Christ. Come and know Him and follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've called us to trust in you, to rely on the good news of the gospel. Thank you, God, for all of the ways, Lord, that you have shown us your grace over and over again and again. Lord, would we be a people who cling desperately to you? Would we be a people who trust you despite our circumstances? Would we be a people like John, Lord, who live our lives fearlessly for you, who bear witness and prepare the way, who live lives of humility, lives that say, make much of Jesus, not me. God, would we follow you? Would we walk in the way of Jesus? We pray all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.